Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz, and Callie the Cat. <laughs> this week, we're discussing the pilot episode of Star Trek Voyager, Caretaker. So, it's the 35th anniversary or something? It cannot, no, that cannot possibly be it. 25th. 30th. 30. Isn't it? No, I was 13 when I first saw it, and I'm 38 going on 39, so it's got to be the 20th, right? No, 25th. No, it's definitely not, um, it could be 25th, but, because 20th, I did a panel for 20th, Mm. and that was probably five or six years ago. I feel like 1996 (laughs) plus 25 might be 2021. I don't know. (laughs) Math. Welcome to Antimatterpod, the podcast where we don't do maths. <laughs> yes, yes, 25. Okay, 2021 okay. minus. <laughs> <laughs> it's the 25th anniversary of Caretaker, and I'm really, really curious to know when was the first time you watched it? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching Emissary. Mm-hmm. I did not see Encounter at Farpoint first i saw it like years after having seen next generation which is really the way to do it yes (laughs) and enterprise also i have like no actual memory of watching the pilot but i probably did like i probably watched voyager and enterprise live but i don't actually have a good handle on it if it was 1995 I was, yeah, I didn't, like, have a Star Trek group at that point. I was in college, you know, so I was, like, making new friends. Yep. You weren't ready to unleash the full force of your geekiness? Yep. I mean, I I was a ridiculous person. (laughs) But, uh, uh, you know, like, there is no way that I couldn't wouldn't have been known as a geek by pretty much everyone. (laughs) Uh, I actually have very vivid memories of the first time I watched Caretaker because I received it on VHS as a Christmas present the year I was 13. I really remember how much I liked Janeway and I wished, like, Kate Mulgrew has a very unusual voice and that was sort of everyone in the family's reaction and I'm like, yeah, it's a weird voice but I love her, shut up. And the next day my parents' marriage ended, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow yeah. okay yeah. like i i don't think these things are really connected but in my in my mind and in my heart they very much are and, and star trek wasn't really my main fandom at the time like tng had ended and i was very deep into having feelings about sequest dsv so oh. uh there there are probably still dozens of us so, <laughs> i loved that show it was so great uh we, we could talk about my OTP for Sequest next. But yeah, that, that, was, that was my first encounter with Voyager and I didn't really become a capital letters Voyager fan until a few months mm. later when we accidentally got some season two uh, videos. Accidentally. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good pilot episode mm. and not a good episode. Like, yes, I want you to expand on that. So 
the thing about pilots is there are very few good ones. Mm, they're really like, hard to they, do. It's really, really hard to introduce a show in a way that isn't cliched mm-hmm. and and isn't like a bunch of people expositing about everything you need to know about them to each other. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's hard. It's hard to do it well. Yes, if you want to see a bad pilot, I highly recommend uh, the first the the pilot for Babylon Five. It is unwatchably <laughs> bad. So, I, Voyager still has plenty of pilot problems, like Caretaker still has plenty of pilot problems, but they cover a huge amount of ground. Like, there's, they introduce so many things, and, like, when you think about all of the stuff that has to happen in this episode versus, say, Encounter at Four Point, which is really yeah. just a bunch of people introducing themselves to each other. Like, that's literally all that happens in Encounter at Four Point. And not even, like, by name. <laughs> and then, like, Riker watches what happened in the opening scene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is, the, that is terrible. Terrible. Pilot and a terrible episode. My friend and their partner have decided to start with Star Trek at Encounter at Farpoint, and I'm like, I love you. You are good people. You don't deserve this. <laughs> don't do it, no. But so what I like about Caretaker is that everyone except Belana, and I will ex- I will uh, tell you more about that in a, yes. in a little bit, but everyone except Belana um, has an introduction that is not them introducing themselves to each other (laughs) or to the audience. They don't like stand and say, hello, I am Harry Kim. There's like little bits and pieces like what we learn about Harry Kim is what Janeway says about him to Tuvok, you know, like what we learn about Tom Harris is that, you know, he's in prison and like, like we get these sort of things. And the, the first time we see Janeway is Tom looking up at her. Mm, yes. And, they, and it pans up and she's got her hands on her hips and she's like, hey, I'm totally in charge. And I'm, I'm here to, uh, <laughs> I'm with, here with Obi-Wan Kenobi to rescue you. <laughs> so it does piloty things well. It, it makes me like, we, we get that there is tension between everyone in Tom Paris, like literally everyone in Tom Paris. Yeah. There is tension. Yeah. And we get that there is tension between the Maquis and the Starfleet people. We get that uh, Janeway and Tuvok have a very close established relationship. Like there's a lot of previous, like established stuff going on. Yes. You know, like the the Janeway and Tuvok stuff is so much better than the Picard and Crusher stuff. Like I can't even, they're they're worlds apart (laughs) in terms of how they play. And not just because the language of setting up a platonic friendship between a man and a woman is different from setting up a romantic tension. Like, ten years of, or seven years have passed and the writing is different and Janeway, the woman, is the one in dominant position. And it's just, it's better. It's just better. It's just better. But, like, the actual story is not. Like, the whole caretaker thing <laughs> like the, the 
it's it's clearly a plot device. It's very Deus ex machina for we have to get them lost in the Delta Quadrant. Like we have to get them to the Delta Quadrant, and then we have to get them lost here. And so, while it is entirely Janeway's choice, she's the only one with agency. Like she takes it away from everyone else. <laughs> no, no, there's no meeting to discuss any of these things, and um, it's all very like driven by this there was a a guy an ancient guy who like steals people and keeps them as pets and his favorite people like he he's he needs to it's just ridiculous and he's like seeding himself so that someone so like his his child will be stuck with this horrible job of take you know taking care of his ant farm of okampa like <laughs> everything about it is bad like nothing in that whole story is good he's a bad person and it's it's so wildly ridiculous like he dies before they can even begin to understand how any of it happened like they they just blow up the array <laughs> it's sort of it's like just... the writers going oh shit, we really don't want to ask too many questions about this guy. We better kill him as fast as we can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so if you like start to think about the story at all, being a pilot that introduces you to these characters and this situation, it's bad. But if you're just <laughs> watching to be introduced to these characters in this situation, it's good. I have never thought about it in those terms until you you said this in our preparation but i think that's a really really good point and like i'm going to confess that i have not rewatched caretaker to prepare for this episode because i have seen it so many times i can quote big chunks of it by heart and honestly i i just it's actually not that rewatchable you know deep space 9 is not my favorite trek but i have seen emissary so many times and i enjoy it every single time uh after a while, watching Caretaker starts to feel like a chore. Yeah, because it's the what's actually happening is not interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just full of holes, and I just get mad at everybody <laughs> if I start thinking about it. That's before we get into the bit where the Kazon exists. <laughs> oh, the Kazon. They tried so hard to make the Kazon happen, and it just never happened. <laughs> Rewatching season two for my blog, I was struck by the fact that with a different writing team, the Kazon could have been really fascinating and nuanced and interesting. And instead, it's basically white people having a moral panic about black people. You know, they, they explicitly said that the Kazon were like, they're based on East Los Angeles area gangs. And I'm like, <sighs> sure, okay, that's potentially interesting, but you're all white people. And... You know, we find out that 30 years ago they freed themselves from slavery. And that's why 30 they're... years. I know, I know. That is my <laughs> own lifetime. And, and that's why they're low tech and dysfunctional and desperate. And they're not given even an ounce of empathy or sympathy or even consideration. Like even Initiations, which I think is a good episode and certainly by far the best Kazon episode. There's just, there's one good case on and that's it. And, and we, <laughs> and I do think part of the problem is that we never see their women. We never see, see them in any situation other than hostility. But mostly yeah. I think the problem is that the writers are racist. 
And the one good Kazan is a cave. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's almost like it's a, like a white savior or a Chakotay savior <laughs> um, story, you know? You know, like uh, Dangerous Minds? Yes, where, yes. Where Michelle Pfeiffer goes into the inner city to save it. So, uh, like The mental image of uh, Chakotay as Michelle Pfeiffer is amazing. And... Yeah, that is a really messed up genre, and the only good thing it ever gave us was Gangster's Paradise. So, yeah, that limitation in the perception of the Kazon is built right there into this pilot. And a lot of people go, you know, it's so stupid how they they have spaceships and they don't make, they can't replicate or create their own water. And it's like, this would have been a great opportunity to explain some of their history instead of going, surprise, it's actually really racist. A season later. Yep, it's just really bad. Everything's bad about the Kazon. They're not great. Yeah. They're not good villains. And anything, every, every time they are almost interesting, they're almost instantly not interesting and or racist at the same time. It troubles me that the series with the first female captain is also the first series where sexism and misogyny are treated as anything other than a joke. We've had the Ferengi for years and it's always been, haha, they like women to be naked. And Ugh. it's only now that suddenly these writers are forced to empathize with a female character that they're like, <laughs> oh, maybe that attitude is bad. Maybe it's bad. Like, yeah, we never see a Kazan woman. Right. Are they living in, is it a Kazan Handmaid's Tale thing or are they warriors in their own right? Do they have their own politics? Are they trying to pull the strings from the background and maybe doing so more successfully than Seska because they're further in the background? We don't know. We'll never know. Are we the only people who look at Star Trek and go, but what if the Kazon came back? We are definitely the only people who look at Star Trek and think, <laughs> what if the Kazon came back? But, like, Kala was almost an interesting character and the really the most interesting he ever was was when he took the baby yes. <laughs> and, like, cared. They yes. cared that any of that happened. That he cared about Seska dying. Like it was like, oh my gosh, this is a a real relationship all of a sudden. So it's it's just it's just interesting. And there yes. and they had a lot, you know, they had a lot of interesting Macbeth scenes that were fun that could have been so much better if they'd leaned into that instead of what they did. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. we're we're getting beyond the scope because we're supposed to be talking about caretaker and Kala's not even in it. Turns out we can do a whole episode on the K's on. Uh, <laughs> Whoops! So <laughs> that's really going to get the listeners. Let's talk about our first impressions of the crew. So the scene where Tom looks up and there's Catherine Janeway with her bun of steel and her hands on her hips and you know in her very first scene she tells us that she was a scientist before she was a captain. I fell in love and yet the pilot is really eager to tell us that just because she's a woman in command doesn't mean she's not a woman. She has the world's most boring fiance. Oh my god. <sighs> I, I he like the, my favorite part is that they're they're like talking you know they're facetiming on the view screen and all and she's like literally doing work while talking to him like and this is the <laughs> last and they don't know that it's going to be the last time for 70 years or whatever but it's still going to be like months <laughs> yeah yeah and yet and yet she's just 
doing her work. And he just has to, like, tell her to look at him, which is hilarious. But he's also, he's so milk toast. Like, I don't care. He's just sort of your standard extruded Star Trek male love interest. And then there's puppies. And puppies. She loves, she loves her dog. She Maybe. loves her dog. She likes to be called ma'am rather than sir. It's a very 1990s don't be too threatened uh, scenario, which is interesting because you con- contrast that with Major Kira, who I think as the second lead rather than the primary mm. lead of the show has more freedom to be abrasive and unlikable and unfeminine. Yeah. But even in Deep Space Nine, like, Jazia is super feminine. Oh, yeah. In, oh, yeah. In presentation, uh, at least. And the more it goes on, she's she gets more. They were like, don't worry, we also have this pretty one. Like, yes. And Nana Visitor is gorgeous. Just, you know, I was, don't yell at me. That's no, not what I'm no, saying. No. But, <laughs> but after the pilot episode, she went and cut off her hair into it's not even a pixie cut, it's a really butch style. And. You know, she did that without getting the permission of the producers. She was just like, that's how Major Kira would have her hair. And then over the next seven seasons, they worked really, really hard to force Kira into a feminine mould. You're right. They absolutely do it to Janeway. And they ha- she has that whole Jane Eyre hollow program <gasps> thing that, like, <laughs> like everything she does in her free time is, is like, from the 19th century. <laughs> it's just very weird. She's super old-fashioned in her forward-thinking scientist future ladiness. I think a lot of that is down to Jerry Taylor and the fact that she was already, for the 90s, older than the generation old. of feminists that who were defining the movement at the time. I realised once that she's only a year younger than DC Fontana. It's interesting. Kate Mulgrew was 40. Yes. When she started Voyager. But according to Apocrypha, not like that, mm. that she was playing five years younger, like that she's not supposed to be 40. No, I've heard that too, that Janeway is meant to be about 35, which I mean, I guess maybe. It's just, you know, all that means is that she is Admiral Super Young. That's what I'd take it out of it. So <laughs> good on her. Yeah. It's just it's just weird. It's like, why? I don't know. It's like how it's just very Hollywood. It's very, oh my gosh, we can't have a 40-something woman in a starring role. That's, no, that's, no. We can't possibly do that. So okay, we we got this one and and we're gonna go with her, but she's not really 40. You can still be attracted to her. (laughs) You're allowed, everybody. (laughs) You know, we've got her in a corset, so she's thin and she's in high heels, so she's tall and she'll walk in a sexy way. It it really struck me, like, the first time I watched Discovery, the first time I watched The Vulcan Hello, how feminine and comfortable Michelle Yeoh looked with her hair in a ponytail, and it's a very loose ponytail, and she's wearing flats, and I was like, oh my god, this is what Janeway could have been. Right. Now, I know that the next character on our list is Chakotay, but I think we should talk about Tom because he's sort of, he and Harry are the POV characters for this pilot. It's sort of telling that Chakotay is sidelined from the beginning. I always say that 
there are three sort of co-protagonists in this pilot. Mm. Tom, Janeway, and Kess are the people who have, like, a point of view and a arc. Yeah, you're right. And everybody else is just sort of in their orbit. And even Kess barely has agency. Like, it's a giant cast, so they couldn't, you know, and again, I'm... <laughs> Belana is is not, like, the Belana that I know and love is not in this pilot. <laughs> she's, she's just not even actually there. There is a Belana in this pilot, <laughs> but it is not even close to who she is. And she's barely on screen. Like, she's just an angry Klingon lady. That's all she is. Who almost flushes her whole boob in one scene. But she immediately, like the the very next episode is a Balana episode. Right. So it's sort of like we didn't put any effort into <laughs> her in the pilot because we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have a whole episode about her and it's gonna be okay. And it's great. Parallax, way better story. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily a bad choice. That's like discovery no, taking good. six episodes to introduce this whole cast. And I think Balana is better served by that, but it's interesting how objectified she is in this story. And yes. to get back to Tom, uh, I listened to the Delta Flyers episode on Caretaker when it came out. Uh, I'm sort of at peak Star Trek podcast, so I've gotten behind on them. But that's uh, Robert Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wong talking about their memories of each episode. And it's very fun. Things that I enjoyed were Robert Duncan McNeil calling himself out for how sleazy Tom is towards women, particularly uh, Janeway. Uh, like, he blames himself, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure you are following a script, dude. Like, this is not your responsibility. But also, he says at one point that Tom Paris was considered as a potential love interest for Janeway, and they were going to cast someone older for the role. I've been saying that since the beginning. <laughs> I think Janeway I and Paris, you. as we all know, are, are my OTP of Voyager, mm -hmm. and I'm not off that. Like, I, <laughs> I ship literally everything, but... It's always going to be Janeway and Paris are going to be the most important to me in terms of Voyager characters. Just partly because, again, I was, what, 20? <laughs> and I, not, not even. Yep. And I just, it was like formative, you know? It's like, I loved Voyager so much and I loved Janeway and Paris and they're like the first fan fiction that I read and wrote was Janeway and Paris. So like... It's just going to be is, <laughs> them. In, this is, in, again, and so precious. The idea that they were ever considered quote-unquote canon, it just makes me feel like I wasn't a crazy person reading into the entire first two seasons. No. Like, I firmly believe that you can see a relationship behind the scenes in the, you know, up until he starts having a thing with Bellana. No, in fact, there's a point in season two where, where Robbie is like, I think this is around the time they stopped pushing Janeway in Paris and started moving towards mm -hmm. Janeway and Chakotay. So, yeah, I found that really interesting because the other thing that we know about the development of Voyager is that they always wanted a Nick Lacano type of character. They always wanted <laughs> Robert Duncan McNeil in the role. And yeah. honestly, that doesn't mean that they never considered casting someone older. We know that there were legal issues with having the Nick Lacano character, and that's why he's Tom Paris. Right. And 
you know, it's it's like how they auditioned men for Janeway and women for Chakotay at one point. Like how DS9 auditioned white men for Cisco. You, you, you throw everything at the wall and see if it sticks. But I, I, I think the AU with an older Paris would have been interesting. I'm fine with the as is. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I just like want to say. I like the 10-year age gap personally, but I don't even mind. I wouldn't mind the five-year if she if she's really 35, whatever, <laughs> fine. Uh, then it, then we're then we're closer to a five-year age gap. But I like the idea of her like meeting him when he was a kid and then forgetting that that happened. Not giving him and a then, second like, thought and then yeah. meeting him as an adult and going. Oh, whoa. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, that would have been really cool because it's a, a sort of borderline creepy storyline that we see a lot with men and younger women. And I don't remember ever seeing it with women and younger men. And I like an age gap and I like a relationship where there, is, there are problematic elements to be negotiated. If mm, that makes yes, sense. Yes, exactly. And that's Oh, my favorite things. But also I think Tom Paris in the pilot is a deeply terrible person and I hate oh, him. Oh, yeah. And so many of my friends are watching Voyager for the first time and going, wow, Tom Paris, he's the worst. And I'm like, yeah, but wait and wait a few seasons. He's going to be the suburban dad of everyone's, I don't want to say everyone's dreams, but he's going to be peak suburban nice dad and it'll be great. And, and how you said that... Ravi, you know, says that, that he blamed himself mm. for him being skeezy. And see, I give Ravi all the credit for him not being skeezy. Right. <laughs> like, I I'm on the other side where I really feel like they tried. They tried to make Tom Paris that guy. They did. That guy that, that I don't ever like and never want in my Star Trek. And they keep trying to put him in Star Trek. Like, every series has a that guy. And it was Tom Paris, and he was just not capable of playing it. Like, he put so much warmth yes. into how these, like, horrible <laughs> lines and situations that that you couldn't, like, you couldn't read it that way. And so there was, like, oh, there's something deeper here. Like, he's, he's not just hitting on people. He's lonely. He's not yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> like, he's not getting, you know doing he's not trying to to hit on the captain and and in her pool or whatever he's you know tr actually trying to make a friend he's he's telling her that he that she matters to him because she's giving him these second chances it's like you read i re i read all of my Janeway Paris stuff into these early seasons where he has horrible storylines because the the actors aren't acting like he's a skeevy, horrible person. No, and all of Tom's good qualities are, or seem to be Robert Duncan McNeil's good qualities. You know, he's open, he's generous, he's kind of funny, kind of a dork, but self-aware about it, and very passionate about uh, holding up the people that he loves. That seems to be Robert Duncan McNeil, and... That, that is who Tom Paris becomes. But I also think, like, what you were saying about how he's not flirting, he's trying to make friends. I, I also think that his background in terms of having neglectful 
and emotionally negligent parents are yes he he needs people to like him and if the only right. way he can do that is to make them attracted to him that that to, right. to, to build an attraction Which that's that's is... the strategy he'll use it's such a psychological thing that really happens. And again, often with women. Yeah. And so having like, that's, I gotta say, this might be a good place to say where Voyager does an incredible job of giving all of the men various feminine traits or like, you know, stereotypically woman centered right right Chakotay is that, that happens sensitive and domestic and Tuvok defines himself to a large degree by his parenthood and Neelix is the cook and the doctor is a caretaker and right. Harry with Harry I feel like a lot of it's bound up in anti-Asian racism to be honest and the emasculation yeah. of race uh, of Asian men but he is another very sensitive and gentle guy who doesn't really like he likes to be romanced he doesn't like to be seduced it's just it's great and and then you know the the women like they they we get Belana in the engineering role mm. and she's also angry all the time <laughs> yes and Janeway is a scientist and in charge and you know she's the mm. authority and seven Seven, when she comes in, is sort of her own thing altogether, but she's the Spock, she's the Odo, she's the Data. And right. it's notable that the most classically feminine of the characters <laughs> is Kess, and she's the one who is treated as a failure and discarded in the, second, in the fourth season. Yeah, she's... They don't know how to write for her, is what it comes down to. I think it's that thing where they don't know how to empathize with women who don't act in some degree some way like men mm -hmm. and this is all very binary and very steeped in stereotypes right. and generalization well but it's it's very 90s it is so 90s i can say <laughs> as a child of the 90s mm. i can still call myself that yeah that the, it's what we were grappling with like the 80s where there was this whole power fantasy stuff mm -hmm. right and then the 90s were, you know, uh, grunge and riot girls. And yes. so there's just th this show, like, yeah, it's using all those those stereotypes. And, and, and so that's why I'm that's why I'm calling them feminine traits. I don't think that cooking or being a good parent <laughs> or um, having soft hair or being a musician is feminine in any way no but we are dealing but with stereotypes it's gender coding yeah so and and that's what i'm talking about relatedly one of the reasons janeway's character is considered inconsistent and I, i'm using uh air quotes, air quotes because i don't think that's actually i don't think she's the worst in terms of inconsistent writing of star trek captains but archer but part of the reason for that my problem, trash boy I know, is that all the writers had a different feminine stereotype or archetype in mind when they were writing Janeway. Mm -hmm. And some people saw her as a school mom and Jerry Taylor saw her as an earth mother for some godforsaken unknown reason. And it seems like no one was really able to go, hey, what if we 
get past the stereotypes and archetypes and just write her as a person? It's just bad. And mm. and it, it's true. There are definitely inconsistencies where she... The one that I always point out is that she has this, like, super faith thing where she, like... She literally has a scene where she explains the concept of faith in God to Harry Kim. Mm. And then, like, a season later... Say she has to go save Cass from whatever horrible thing is is holding Cass hostage, and, and she has she's to a like TV atheist. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, what are what are you talking about? That is not Janeway. Mm. <laughs> like, it's just wrong. You can't you can't have both ways. And so there are inconsistencies. But I think you're right that it's a it's a problem with different people having like Mm. putting different ideas of who Janeway is onto her and certainly you know Archer is at his worst when he's trying when they try and force him into an equally narrow masculine box so yes you know right the patriarchy it hurts men too (laughs) but I do think that that yeah, Janeway isn't alone in her inconsistencies. Mm. And I also think of every Star Trek character or every captain, she has the most reason to be inconsistent. 100% she's, because she's the only she's one. She shouldn't be. Yeah she, yeah, she shouldn't be consistent when she's holding the entire, like the I- idea of Starfleet and the Federation herself like she's she's gluing it together right in a place that doesn't know what any of those words even mean and and she can never get a break you know picard can take a holiday and go to rice right. and wear skimpy shorts and have a fling and have adventures janeway has to do all that in the context of her ship right and that's really... and she's always captain she never yeah. gets to not be captain even if she's in the holodeck hanging out. Yeah. Basically, Voyager is 2020 and Janeway is working from home. So I will, I cut her a little slack. <laughs> I cut and her I, a little And slack. again, I, you know, write, uh, write in, into my own little headcanons that it is all of this psychological stuff that she's mm. dealing with. You know, mm. I say, oh, well, she was, she was depressed then. So she was making these choices. So honestly, Janeway makes sense to me. There are inconsistencies, but she holds, like, she feels consistent emotionally, and that's what's important. Mm. Let's talk about Chakotay, who you've described here as the most stereotypical native character ever. It's just really sad. Uh, yeah. Like, it's sad on every level, because now creating a native character now, which they should definitely do, but Mm. putting that character into Star Trek, that character automatically is stuck with the Chakotay baggage and that's just so upsetting like we're never going to get this clean quote-unquote native character we're not gonna get because of this this yeah. mess <laughs> that, yeah. that we got with Chakotay where he like it was already bad the TNG episode isn't any better like that episode is really bad that's the episode <laughs> and... journey's end which sets up either chakotay's home planet or one very much like it colonized by native americans because that is absolutely how indigenous people work <laughs> oh, bad and then they get kicked out kind of like in uh Picard, you know the, yeah yeah starfleet's like, gotta gotta leave now because the cardassians own this place and it's like 
but they don't really, and mm-hmm. but no one really does. So it, right, you're, it's, it puts them on the wrong. It's just all. It's all bad. It's all bad, and it's all like very much a white person writing what they think an indigenous person is. Right. So there's all and... the 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 dream watching the, and the vision quests and none of it is true just that's 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 going to end the sentence none of it is true <laughs> it's a <laughs> none of it is true to the idea of an indigenous character mm. and it's just it never gets good in no, voyager no. i want to I like will... chakotay and i have troubles to their credit they hired a consultant uh, unfortunately, the consultant was a white fraud, a native faker, who was already notorious for being a fake, and Native American groups had been warning Hollywood for years that he was actually a white guy. Uh, so they start off on a bad foot. They audition a lot of Native American actors and decide they're too quote-unquote on the nose, meaning too Native American. So they cast Robert Beltran, who is a very talented Mexican-American actor who doesn't seem to have any Native heritage. No. I don't know how Indigenous identity in Mexico works, but to my knowledge, he doesn't really participate in Native culture or anything like that. So, yeah, they just went for the nearest brown guy, basically. And the thing is, if he was... Mexican American and not native, that would be better. Right. Or <laughs> like just a Mexican American character who has some native heritage that he is learning about. Like that is a really interesting story. But like so much of it is dated even for nineteen ninety six. Right. Like, That's right, exactly. I remember as a kid cringing every time they used the word Indian because even then I knew that the new and appropriate term was Native American. And just the whole, I hear in some tribes, if I save your life, you belong to me. That's a setup for a slash fic. It should not be <laughs> canonical. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, it's just everything about poor Chicote is poorly done. Yeah. And, uh, and so like, I get like the more, the further we get from Voyager, mm. like the more time goes on the more blatantly bad yes. <laughs> it, it really starts to stick out. I understand what you're saying, that everything they do from now is tainted by what they did with Chakotay, but I really do think that New Trek, the Trek Renaissance, needs Indigenous representation. They should definitely do it. Yeah, like, like Discovery Films in Toronto, and there is no shortage of hugely talented Native Canadian, I think it's Canadian Aboriginal? of Indigenous Canadian actors. And, and obviously, Evan Evagoria, Evagoria in Picard is half Maori, but he's playing a Romulan. So. Romulan, yeah. <laughs> like, good, but... Yep. So, right, so... I'm not saying they shouldn't do it because of all this baggage. I just feel, like, sorry for the actor, I yeah. guess. <laughs> like, I feel badly for the person who has to deal with it. Because... Also, because they're inevitably going to end up on panels with Robert Beltran, and honestly, he seems like a <sighs> bit of a dick. And everything I've seen of Robert Beltran has been very, like, dismissive, I guess is the best way. Like, when people bring up to him that 
you know, maybe it wasn't the best representation mm. of an indigenous population. He sort of gets defensive and doesn't listen. Yeah. So let's move on to the greatest character in all of Star Trek. <laughs> Tuvok. Yes. I have a Tuvok standee in my house now. I'm so happy I love for it. you. <laughs> it's delicious. Tuvok is amazing. He's best Vulcan by far. <laughs> yes. And I, his relationship with Janeway is so precious to me. I just love everything about it. I love how warm it is right off from the beginning. Mm. I love that he is just as, like, he does crazy stuff for Janeway the way that Kirk does crazy stuff for Spock. Yes. Like, it's that same level of that's insane, and I love that. Like, I love that they have that relationship, and I'm forever sad that they are the least represented in fan fiction. Like, even, like platonic i'm not saying mm. like i do i would ship them but i but we don't even have fic about them having adventures right there's just i mean tuvok a lot tuvok yes best character in trek chemistry with everyone mm. is highly uh, he's the least you know represented in, in voyager and like it's just it's very upsetting to me because it it cannot not be racist no <laughs> like, no there's, there's just i don't have another explanation for why tuvok is so ignored i have a theory but i think the primary reason is indeed racism but i also also think it's that tuvok enters the series as a man who already knows who he is and his regrets are mainly behind him and he doesn't really change much over the course of the series save that he unbends to an extent to reveal his affection more than he did at the start but on the whole he's not the most dynamic character and i love that about him i love his stability i love the respect that he has for everyone even neelix who often doesn't deserve it and i think he is a character who is almost the heart and soul of the show in a way that's easily overlooked because he is entertaining and fun to watch with every single other regular character when I put it like that, the only reason he's overlooked, aside from, like, I really do think a lot of it comes down to racism. The, yeah, he absolutely is stable, and he absolutely does, like, he's a supporting character mm. in every way. He supports. Yes. But it's sort of like, so shouldn't he be supporting people? <laughs> like, that's, can't we still write thick about that? Like, I don't understand. Now I'm thinking that if he was a white guy, he would probably be the male bicycle of the cast. Like, I realise the entire cast minus Neelix is basically the, the bicycle, but <laughs> now I'm side-eyeing fandom extra hard. I just, I, I love Tuvok so much. And, I, you know, I, I also, I have written Tuvok, mm. but I've definitely written more Janeway in Paris. Yeah. So, like, it's, I'm also part of the problem i guess <laughs> but i will confess that i completely overlooked him until my current rewatch so i am not excusing myself from anything here i try to give him you know his due at least in my ensemble fix like i don't actually yeah, write yeah. much voyager fic 
right no, now. No, no, so, I haven't for years. And also to Pell too, I'm like on a mission to <laughs> create, <laughs> to give to Pell literally any characterization mm-hmm. whatsoever. Someone somewhere out there is going to write me a Janeway Tuvok to Pell fic, and I'm going to be very grateful. Nice. Yes. Uh, we're almost at an hour. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> Harry Kim. Yes. Every time I watch Caretaker, I'm blown away by how beautiful Garrett Wong is and the floppiness of his perfect 90s, non-threatening boy hair. It's magnificent. That's absolutely true. One of my photo caps, uh, he just has amazing hair in one shot. You know, my my mm, like mm. tagline for Janeway is that her, her hair is fabulous. And I was like, oh, his hair is fabulous. <laughs> and, and I compared it to Poe Dameron. Oh, so. no, you're not wrong. Uh, I, I said something in my Q and the Grey post about how the only redeeming feature of that episode was Harry's floppy hair. And then I, <laughs> I, I mentioned that when I linked to it on Twitter and Garrett Wong replied. And I, I, I cannot be acknowledged by the actors in that way. Like, <laughs> I want to objectify you. You don't get to respond. This is a one-way relationship. <laughs> Poor Harry Kim. Harry Kim is another one who is routinely overlooked mm-hmm. by fandom. And there, but unlike with Tuvok, there are like the rabid Harry Kim fans who will <laughs> come to, yes, like, you know, his defense and do write him, usually with Tom. But, I was going to say, they're... I understand that there is a thriving and powerful <laughs> yes. group of Tom Harry. Um, Tom Harry shippers and I don't ship it but I fully respect them and so he he has his own little corner I guess of of the fandom but it is still true that sort of in wider fandom or like if you're gonna ask non-Voyager fans but Mm. like Trek fans they'll Mm. they'll point out Harry Kim as like a waste of space that he has no characterization whatsoever that like literally all they know about him is that he was never promoted during the series and it's just it's gross which is again (laughs) just really bad because Rick Berman did not like Garrett Wong what I do when I'm watching Voyager and I really saw it like Voyager actually does a good job. You know how we were always complaining about uh, giving the bridge crew, making the bridge crew annoyingly prominent in Mm -hmm. uh, Discovery. Voyager does a really good job with their giant ensemble. And to be fair, they're all like actual regulars. They are, which I do think was a mistake. They're supposed to get, you know, (laughs) uh, be, be prominent. But little things, like there's this, great part where we learned that Harry wears a mask to sleep and yeah. like why and you know of course he has his clarinet and his love of music that he like saved up replicator rations to make a, a clarinet because he left his actual one at home and when he goes you know he has his fiance and when he is in like that little bubble reality where she he's back on earth and he has like a favorite coffee place yeah. and, he, and his he has a favorite coffee order. And it's like, those are details. Those are the details that I want. You know, they're like throwaway, not important to the plot. They just tell you who Harry is. And, and he's a really he sweet guy that, that cares about community and no, like knows people's names and pays attention to little things. 
I don't understand the criticism that Harry Kim doesn't have character because he has so much character. What I don't get is this idea that Harry Kim is bad with women. He is wildly successful with women. He just finds it uncomfortable when women come at him aggressively. Like, that's it. And I, I think, again, this mimetic idea that Harry is bad with women is racist because it comes up in the script and people accept it as, as reality, but it's not remotely true. It's not true. And that it's weird. And he, ha- he has plenty of little one-off relationships. Right. It's, it's just, it's, it's strange. It's strange. And, the, uh, and also this idea that he, like, yeah, he's not promoted. That's not on Harry. Like no, that it's just is weird. In universe on Janeway and in reality on Rick Berman, right? And so... why are we passing up an opportunity to criticize Rick Berman? We love that shit. <laughs> Let's always criticize. Like definitely everything wrong is Rick Berman, and you know all of them. <laughs> Fred Praga and Jerry Taylor aren't. They're better than Rick Berman, but they aren't great. No, no. I'm very fond <laughs> of Braga because I like his. Uh, I, I share his taste for weird science fictional time travel stuff, but <laughs> that is there's that, stuff. There's is... things that are questionable, and obviously Rick Berman is a trash person, and not the way that Jonathan Archer is. No, he is a trash person in the low level Me Too way. Right, but back to Harry. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Harry had a fiance mm-hmm. so i don't exactly understand how he's bad with women if he had a fiance and in like the new janeway um autobiography he oh, yeah. he gets he get he ends up with her he gets oh, back nice. with her like and i was just i was like oh that's actually like i always sort of i make fun of libby almost as much as i make fun of mark but <laughs> it's really not fair to libby because she has in a personality. The one, in the one, you know, episode we get with her, yeah, she has a personality. They actually have a really sweet relationship that I sort of like. I can cheerlead that, you know. It's and and since I don't like any of his uh, canon relationships in the show, it's like sure, he gets yeah. back together with Libby. They have a happy life. Like that's great. Yeah, I love that for him. I I'd also, while we're, because we're allegedly talking about Caretaker. Oh, yeah. The pet names, the way that uh, Valana and Harry call each other Starfleet and Maquis. Mm. Like, I, every once in a while it comes back up, and every time I'm happy. And I love their <laughs> relationship, the way that it, like, it's not actually in the show. <laughs> but the... The, their relationship that is seen in those tiny moments where they call each other by these pet names and mm. they support each other and like share Tom is really great. And I, and I just, I wish that they, I wish that they had built on the potential of those characters and that relationship and that we got more of that friendship. Mm. It, and it really feels like they started, they were, setting the groundwork for a canonical romance and I have Mm. to believe that the only reason they didn't go through with that was again racism yeah racism (laughs) it had faded well into the background before they worked out that 
Roxanne Dawson had amazing chemistry with Robert Duncan McNeil. And I like Tom and Baylana, but I also would have liked Harry and Baylana. I, I, I just think at some point early on, they decided, actually, this Asian kid, we're not going to do anything to support him or uphold him. And, you know, allegedly he was the one, almost the one who was fired at the end of season right. three. Uh, yep. And then Garrett Wong made it onto the people's most beautiful, 50 most beautiful people of the year <laughs> list. And, and they Correct. ditched Jennifer Lean instead. Uh, Wong has said that that's not entirely accurate. And I think I'll have to dip back into Delta Flyers when he discusses that. Mm. Because certainly Jennifer Lean seems to have had problems even then. Yes. I hate that her career came to an end because I wonder if she would have been in a better position now than if she had, if it had not. For those who don't follow Voyager actors in the news, Leanne uh, has not acted for a long time and I think is living in Texas and has racked up a bunch of criminal charges and basically don't do meth is the moral of the story. Her story reminds me a lot of Grace Lee Whitney's. Yeah. And, and, you know, Whitney really struggled with addiction for a very long time and got through it and her career revived and she wound up having a successful and happy life. So Mm -hmm. I I hope that that comes true for Lean as well. Is this a good segue to talk about Kess? Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) I love Kess. And they, from the beginning, did not know how to write her. No. Like, they did not know what they were going to do with her. I hate her introduction. I love Cass as, like, the girl who's climbing up the rabbit hole. Yes, yes. The fairy princess going on adventures. I hate the fact that we meet her as battered and bruised and a prisoner. And she, and being you know, saved by Neelix, yeah, who's even... lying to our heroes in order to do it. It's, everything is bad about that. That's not just, that's just not good. I think even if Janeway had been the one to save her, it would have been better. Uh, yes. But yeah, I think the whole neelix Kess relationship was Oof. poorly conceived. And your note here is that Kess is an abuse victim and also a literal child. And to be honest, I never have any problem accepting, sure, the Okampa are fully grown adults at the age of one and they are sexually mature and emotionally mature or as emotionally <laughs> mature as an adult 20-year-old can be and there's nothing skeevy happening here. But nevertheless, the gap in age between Ethan Phillips and Jennifer Lean is so great and right. like, I think if they had cast someone younger as Neelix, it might have worked, but it was so far from being a relationship between equals. The issue with their the actors' ages is because they're both playing aliens and they're both playing aliens that are new even, mm. like they're not even Vulcans or whatever that, that we're we're aware of. Yeah, there's there's the really like we don't know how how old either uh like I guess we we know that the Acompan lived to be seven years old, but until she comes back in Fury, I was always sort of like, what's seven? <laughs> like, it's, we, you know, we made up time. Seven in, in the Delta <laughs> Quadrant could be 80. We yeah, don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like that, that it's, it's another thing that you just shouldn't think too much about in science fiction. And then Neelix, the thing is that even if he is a young, what is he? 
Talaxian, mm-hmm. even if he is a young Talaxian. He has a ship. He has a job. He was in the military for a while and left. I was going to say, and, his history like, in he's, the military makes me think he's consi- he's older than, say, 30. He, yeah, he's not, like, he's lived too much to have this. And she literally lived her two years underground, mm-hmm. being, you know, that the caretaker's aunts in his ant farm. Like, she has no experience whatsoever. So no, no. Uh, putting those two together is the the it's just not balanced in any way. No, and I as much as I love an age gap, there are certain conditions that have to be in place for me to be on board. One is that in experience or intelligence they have to be equals, and two, the the story has to acknowledge the unevenness and the consequences of that and Voyager tried really really hard not to and right. it felt dishonest in a way and then there was the whole Neelix jealousy subplot that came along a season Ugh. or so later and that was it really served both characters poorly I like Neelix but I like him best after Kess breaks up with him in season three I like him best really after Kess is gone unfortunately no because... no that makes sense I think sometimes a relationship holds a character back even the memory of it and it's easier to overlook the skeeziness of the neelix kiss relationship once kiss is gone and the the issue is that neelix's other closest relationship is with tuvok who is like another person who like tuvok is mr boundaries and neelix doesn't know what a boundary is yeah so like i get why they put those two characters together and why they built up that relationship. But when you have, like, you look at the way that Neelix treats Kess and the way that Neelix treats Tom and the way that Neelix treats Tuvok together, it doesn't make Neelix look good. No, no, you kind of have to take him. You really have to compartmentalize him. And it's a shame because I love Kess and I really identified with her when I was a teenage girl like obviously I identified with Janeway and weirdly I sort of overlooked Seven um Seven Balana because she was so angry and I was very much in denial about being an angry teenage girl uh (laughs) but I I love her now obviously but one of the reasons that they said they thought Kess was unappealing was that she was too too much aimed at the teenage girl demographic and you know, in the costume book, they describe her as dressing like a teenage girl. And I'm like, you keep saying that like it's a bad thing. Hollywood, society as a whole, really looks down on teenage girls. Yeah. And, you know, they, they use that, you know, the like a, a politician says something that you, you don't like. And they say, oh, just like a teenage girl. And it's like, mm. what? <laughs> like, mm. what are you talking about? So, yeah, it's just bad. And I'm just saying, and... you know who were the first to be into the Beatles? Teenage girls. <laughs> well, teenage girls are, are great and uh, we should always support them. I have that. That's one of my, like, uh, reusable hashtags, support teen <laughs> girls, mm. because it's just, it's just silly. It's silly not to. Mm. Um, but and I think, I think that Kess could easily have coexisted with Seven. Like I think yes. that would have been really. I, I mean, you've said this before that they should none of like they should have had like five regulars and a bunch of supporting characters, right, and right. that's and, true. 
if they had <laughs> so. gotten to season four and dropped, say, Kess and Harry down to recurring, so there's not the pressure mm. to have them in every episode and not, not the pressure to give them story. And lines. Neelix, why are we keeping Neelix up? I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, Neelix Just saying. has to go. But for some reason, they were really against all of, like, that. Ironically, that, you for know, a science fiction show, I think Star Trek in the 90s was really afraid to change. Yeah, it, it's because, you know, what happened with Terry Farrell, where she was like, look, I don't want to be a regular. Yeah. And... I still want to play this character. I just don't want to be a regular. And they were like, no. And, and you say they. And wrote but... her out and brought in someone else. Yeah. yeah. It was Rick Berman. <laughs> we all know who. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great episode for criticizing Berman. I love it. I, I, it's just, it's, it would have made so much more sense to spread the love. Yeah. But I don't know. They, they wrote Belana really well. <laughs> so they I got to give them that. Belana is my, you know, Belana and Seven, but Seven is like on a whole other level. But uh, Belana is, is extraordinary. Belana is an incredibly well-written character over seven seasons. She goes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. She goes on a journey, and they check back in with her at the same time. You know, every season, yeah. and it's really clever and it's really well done. And I don't know how they <laughs> did so well with Belana, um, when they did so poorly with others, but. They did. And maybe you said that, you know, I said that she's angry all the time and that's a quote unquote masculine trait. And so maybe they just were easier to do that. Like it was easier for the writers to write that. But I want, you know, you said that you didn't initially identify with Bellana. No. I want to repeat something I said on a panel some years ago now. <laughs> Where I said, Bellana is my Spock. I remember you, you've talked about that before. And I think it's a really great point. And I think having a character who is as angry as her and as conflicted about her identity and, and whose story carries over seven seasons, and it never really comes to an easy resolution. She no. goes forward, she goes backwards, she has good days, she has bad days. I think it's an absolute masterclass in writing a key supporting character yeah. over time. That she is consistent yes. in her inconsistency. <laughs> that that all of the inconsistencies that come up in Belana's story are there on, are pointed out are part of the plot yeah. are like this is we're gonna deal with this now and she's consistently uh going back and forth in different ways and she never gets over her like she never fully gets over her identity issues she's dealing with sort of an anxiety issue pretty much throughout the entire like even in the seventh season she's still dealing with that anxiety yeah and that's true to life <laughs> and so it's just it's really well done, and I think that if that if they had paid more attention to her, mm. they would have screwed her up. That's so exactly what I was exactly about to say. It's exactly the right amount yeah. of attention. I feel like Bellana's story succeeds because she's a supporting character, and that she's not the focus of attention the way Janeway and Seven are, and therefore 
there's not the pressure riding on her and not the level mm-hmm. of attention. And they can just go through and quietly tell a good story. You know, the way they did with Worf in, C- in, in TNG. Right. Worf's story exactly. back then was very, pre-Deep Space Nine, was very consistent and very well told. I mean, you need to have tolerance for Klingon shit, but I'm a bit fond of Klingon shit, so. So, we have not discussed the Doctor. Oh, the Doctor. Well, he is barely a person in this first episode. He's just like he's literally he's literally the program. He doesn't do anything new. Uh, He grows. You know, that's a character that you know goes on quite the journey over Voyager. Um, you know, it's kind of required of that character to grow in many ways. But what's interesting is that he wasn't wasn't planned to be a funny character and that was something mm. that Robert Picardo brought to the role and it almost leads to him taking over the series like yeah I find the doctor very wearisome and this argument that seven of nine takes over when the doctor is there every <laughs> second episode seriously yeah seven takes over in a way that like Tuvok Chakotay not Bolana is pretty like Bolana is always that you know second tier like yeah. she's just that's where she exists so she she doesn't change Tom arguably but Tom still gets to do all, all his Tom stuff yeah but like Harry Chakotay and Tuvok definitely are sort of put in the shadows by Seven but as you're you're absolutely correct also the doctor it definitely like the doctor mm. has just as much character stuff but he's been there all along i guess like you don't see it as a change because no. what happens is his story doesn't go back the way that Tuvox and Chakotay is like yeah he's not put in that box and um, I, I think it frustrates me with the Doctor, whereas it doesn't with Seven, because I feel like with Seven they were doing something genuinely revolutionary in yes. terms of the character and the way her story was written. And it obviously built on a lot of great writing from other science fiction series, but Seven was new and the Doctor is just, you know, mash up Data with McCoy and you've got the holographic Doctor. I am interested that you said that he wasn't meant to be funny because I can't actually imagine him as not, not funny. funny. No, I know. Like, what even would that be? Like, that would literally be like a, you know, Siri talking to me. That's I... not interesting. <laughs> I get the impression that he was basically conceived as medical Siri. And I guess because it was the 90s and we didn't have Siri then, no one realized how boring that concept would be. And I think the idea always was that he would grow, go on this journey in, of personhood, but right. it, it's Robert Picardo who made it a journey of comedy personhood. Yeah. I like it. I like, I like the, I, yeah, I can't imagine it another way. So no. I, don't, I don't love, like, the Doctor, I think I agree with you that it's just sort of tired. It's like, we did Odo, we did Data, we did mm. Spock. And uh, and Seven brings something different to those same tropes. Yeah. Whereas the Doctor doesn't really. The Doctor is basically Data again. Like, not the same personality, but it's sort of the same idea. 
Right. Like he, right. he's also put on trial to prove that he exists and he's also used in poor ways. I like the doctor centric episodes that that aren't about his identity, but are more about how he his identity fits into his community. Yes, no, that makes sense. And yeah, I don't dislike the doctor. I just get tired of him by the end of season seven. I, th- I mean, I think that's fair. I think <laughs> that he also has a harsh personality. Like, yeah, a little goes a long way. And honestly, I don't yeah. think he's a very good doctor. So he's not. <laughs> well, yeah. I wouldn't want Siri to be my doctor either. <laughs> no, and we know that he was programmed by one of the biggest creeps in Starfleet. And yes. I'm not even talking about Reginald Barkley. wow yeah it's kind of amazing that he is a nice person at all really when you think about it sheer luck and also the influence (laughs) of kiss the yeah i was gonna say uh it's the it's the people and that's why those are the more interesting episodes because it's it's someone building a an identity is not as interesting as someone becoming more themselves because of the interactions that they're having. Right, yes. So your note here is Janeway's choice. If this were a Cardassian ship, we'd be home now. If this were a Klingon (laughs) ship, we'd be home now. If this were a Vulcan ship, we'd be home now. Why are humans? Which brings me to my thought. Like, we don't see Seska in this episode. But I have to think that the whole caretaker shenanigans were just a very bad day for her. She's thrown to the other side of the galaxy, she's abducted, she's put through tests. Then it turns out that Tuvok was a spy and she didn't even notice, and that has to be embarrassing, even though he didn't notice her, so at least they're even. And then this Starfleet captain goes and traps them on the other side of the galaxy and she has to wear a Starfleet uniform and she's going to be on this ship for 70 years pretending to be a Bajoran? <laughs> Seska's worst day ever. Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> but, yeah, so obviously I was quoting Seska yes. in the If This Were a Cardassian Ship We'd Be Home Now, one of the uh, best lines, best episodes, yes. But, uh, but 100% Klingons and Vulcans would also not have done this. And, and, and probably Andorians. And, like, it's, it's pretty much very human to do this. It is. And I think that uh, reflects the way that we have a strong sense of justice and decency and also a dash of paternalism. Yes. I guess it's also a super American choice. That brings me to my note here, uh, the social security controversy, because this episode ends with Janeway telling the caretaker that, you know, children have to grow up and the Ocampa have to learn to stand on their own feet. And (laughs) a lot of this aired around the time that Bill Clinton was uh, tipping a lot of people off social security and a lot of left-wing and liberal viewers interpreted this episode as having a subtext, basically an anti-social security subtext. And it's interesting because all through the series, Voyager does sort of have this odd, low-key reactionary tendency. 
Mm. You know, refugees are a bit scary. These former slaves are scary and not white and all of that stuff. And it's really built mm-hmm. into the pilot. Yeah, I... It's definitely there. And it's definite. It's sort of... You know, I, Voyager is my trek, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, as you and say. And that's how we can criticize it. And that's how we can criticize it, right. And I'm very critical <laughs> all the time yeah. of many of the things, uh, both within the storylines and, you know, things that happened uh, behind the scenes and outside of, and like, why things happened the way they did in the storylines and stuff like that. All of that. Mm. I can't watch an episode without thinking about the different things and the way that I saw it when, again, I was a very young adult in terms of science, not an adult at all. (laughs) And yet being asked to make decisions that they kept saying would affect my whole life. Yeah. You know, where do you want to go to college? What do you want to major in? What are you going to do with your life? Mm. You know, and it's like, I don't know. I'm a kid, man. And Voyager was my show at that time. And I was also like, I've mentioned before on various places that I went through a, I was, I had a mental breakdown (laughs) during Voyager. As Voyager ended, I, within six months after Voyager ended, I was hospitalized. So it, like, I think it was even, because if it ended in May, that yeah, it was like, less than so Mm. it's just really like i was becoming a person when voyager happened and on the back side of it on the on the other end when it was over and i literally named myself after (laughs) seven of nine so i like boy when i say that voyager shaped my personhood like i mean it literally no no watching this show at that time of my life is it shaped how i think and how i feel and how i see and that's why i can look back on it with without my rose-colored glasses yes and say "Woo, that's really rough and i um, I'm on Tuvok's side, where <laughs> Tuvok was like, this is not our job. We are, we are, no, like, that guy was over mm. <laughs> invested in this nonsense, and you're just, you're just continuing that, when, and you have even less reason <laughs> to be doing this. That's why I, lo- I love Seska so much. That's why I'm always talking about Seska, is because Seska's the one who's pointing at it and saying, this is, this, like, letting the Kazon do whatever they want is a wrong decision, but what you're doing is also a wrong decision. I think, and I don't think Janeway is necessarily wrong. I think that the Kazon would have probably wiped out the Ocampa if, if they were left to their own devices. And I think if you can prevent a genocide, then you should do so. Everything I know about the Kazon, I don't think that they could. You, you don't like think there, there were like there were two ships. Yeah, like that's how? True. Would, I just don't. I don't see people who yeah like have to steal water mm. being able to take out the account. Like 
the Yokampa not being able to defend themselves is a problem. That is true. The Yokampa not being able to leave their planet. But I guess my point is that the caretaker is the one who put them in that position. Right. And Janeway's still like, yeah, they blow up the array and the two Kazon ships, but then they still leave. Like, the Okampa are still hanging out on their planet, right? And they don't like, even know about the danger. They don't even know yes. that the, the so, caretaker is dying. Yeah, so, so I don't see how Voyager... I don't see how Voyager taking care of this one threat mm. and then bouncing... <laughs> Is actually better for the Akampa. It's so typical of nineties trick. <laughs> like just, I just don't see. It. So I'm not. Yeah, I, there's no. I guess there's no right choice here. Is the real? Is the real? The real answer is there's no good choice, and so I'm fine with Janeway's choice. Mm. As opposed I to just killing Tuvix, that... which is the only right choice. <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, the the idea, like Janeway's saviorhood is super federal you can tell that mm. her dad was an admiral you can tell that she lives and breathes starfleet and that's interesting and that's good and that makes her a great character i just am that person who says also starfleet can be bad sometimes yes and also i think that if this had been a next generation episode there would have been a meeting about it where everyone argues the rights and wrongs of destroying the array and incorporating the Marquis into the crew. But because they're so set on establishing Janeway as a quote-unquote strong female character, there was no room for that consultation. She needed to make that decision or else they thought it might be sexist, I guess? I I guess. Uh, But she just comes off as, like... High-handed. Yeah, it's just like literally Tuvok is like, hey, maybe let's not do that. And she's like, no, I'm going to do that. And then, no. I'm sorry, when Tuvok speaks, you should listen. Right. I mean, that's the truth is in more than one episode, Tuvok, like in the in the teaser, Tuvok will say something mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it'll turn out to be correct. Yes. And the entire episode would not have happened if we just listened to Tuvok. <laughs> See, this is why Tuvok needs to join the cast of Star Trek Picard. Like, maybe their episodes would be shorter, but they would have a they much also, easier time getting things done. They also need an adult, so... And, and obviously <laughs> Picard is not... You know, he's the cool no, granddad. Yeah. But, yeah, so so I just think it's 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 very human, it's very American, it's very, it's very 90s, as you say. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, that is... And it's it's interesting to look at it from our lens of now to look back and and think about how the entire series is based on this one decision. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I know enough to really say this with any intelligence, but I'm not going to let that stop me. It sort of highlights the difference between liberalism and leftism. Ooh, yes. And I think Voyager thinks it's very liberal and is actually very centrist. Right, which is what liberalism is. Yeah, yeah. The, and that is so it's, it's, 1990s. This is Clinton-era yeah. Star Trek. Very much so. Yeah. 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 Whew. Mm. Well, uh, that was fun. <laughs> we have talked about Caretaker for about as long as Caretaker runs. I'm so proud of us. Whoops. <laughs>
Um, before we wrap up, I have one thing I wanted to say. Yes. This aired in 1995. Oh, shit. So it's actually the 26th anniversary. Oh, that's so interesting. But yes. since 2020 was, 2020. you know, let's just skip over that. Yes. <laughs> we can call it the 25th. 25th with an asterisk. Yeah, that makes right. sense because I was born in 82, so I was 13 in the summer of 95. Cool. Okay, I'm really glad that we got this sorted out. <laughs> just, I was like, because I was like, okay, so like, when did I graduate? <laughs> like, I was trying to, to figure out exactly how old I was in these. And so, yeah. So I looked up the, the air date. And I, I also, my very first memory of being aware of Voyager was a, a column about Genevieve Bujold quitting the role. And I had a scrapbook where I cut out and saved any Star Trek related articles that happened to cross my path. And I saved this article because it was basically overworked, underpaid journalist thinks that being a starship captain sounds much easier and doesn't know what Bujol is complaining about. And what I took from that, that, that column at age about 12 is Ooh, another Star Trek, and this one has a lady captain. I don't know if I can <laughs> ship a lady captain because any of the crew will, will be subordinate to her in rank. Oh, well, I'll watch it anyway, and I'll probably like it. Anyway, when Sequest on. And uh, <laughs> look where we are now. That's so funny. <laughs> uh, I think I was a weirdly sexist little kid, actually. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @antimatterpod and on Facebook. And every single episode, I say I'm going to be better about sharing episodes on Facebook. And every single fortnight, I forget. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks when we'll be discussing the classic TOS episode, City on the Edge of Forever. <laughs>